All right, if you have your Bible, open it up to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, the very last verse in Malachi chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew and go backwards. That's the easiest way to find Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, raise your hand. We'll get you a Bible. Also, you can open up your YouVersion Bible app on your smartphone or tablet. And uh, that, uh, there's a, an event there in the YouVersion uh, app. And you can follow along there as well. Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 5 is where we're going to be at today. Uh, in 1995, I know it's reaching back a ways for some of you, but uh, I was a teenager in the 90s and so a lot of things I think about have 90s references. Uh, but in 95, there was a movie called Waterworld. Anybody torture themselves by watching this movie? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, basically the concept of the movie. If you don't know what it's about is, it's all in the title. The world is water. That's the whole thing. The, the whole movie is based around that idea. And basically people are learning to live on a giant ocean. And, and you know, that, that's kind of the, the whole concept of that. Uh, and, and so I, I say that just to say, think about life like that for just a moment. Think about if, if life was, the whole world was just water and your life is like a boat, right? You're, you're a boat on that ocean uh, of the entire world. Well, here's the thing. Uh, that our lives are sunk in this ocean, and when Jesus rescues you, when he saves you, when he redeems you, he unsinks your boat. That's the, that's the idea, that, that you get saved and you're unsunk. Well, in this, Jesus, he, as he unsinks your boat, uh, the, the issue of that, the reality of that, is that when the boat is in the water, it doesn't have problems. The problems for the boat come when the water gets into the boat, right? Boats are made to float on water. Boats can do a lot of good on water. Boats can, can uh, be really uh, purposeful and useful when they're in the water. But when the water gets in the boat, then you have a problem. Then you have an issue. And Jesus talked about this in John 17 verses 15 through 16. He said this, uh, in this high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for you and praying for me. And he says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. When, when Jesus was praying this prayer, what he was saying is that you need to have not be, not be taken out of the world, you need to be in the world, but not of the world. The, the, the problem that we have in Christ is when we get the world's thoughts into our heart, into our minds, and then we try to live life that way. The, the, the only thing that's going to happen when you do that, the only thing that's going to take place is your boat's going to sink. You're not going to float. You're not going to, you're not going to have power and purpose and, and direction and a capacity and ability for your life. You're just going to have problems and issues. And, and here's the reality. When Jesus unsinks your boat, when he saves you, when he pulls you out of the depths of despair and you begin floating on the surface of the water, he, he doesn't do this and then take you out of the world. No, that's what he prayed, right? I don't pray that you take him out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. What Jesus' prayer was to say that not, it's not just that you're saved and you're taken immediately into heaven, but that he has a purpose for your life, that he has something that he wants to do with you. He doesn't take you out of the ocean to use the boat analogy. He leaves you in the water and then he uses you for the express purpose of helping to unsink more boats. That, that's what you're there to do. You're there to help unsink more boats. If you know Jesus, the reason you're not in heaven is because other people need to know Jesus and you have influence with them. You have opportunity with them. You have a chance to be able to bring the gospel into their lives in a way that nobody else can and that's what the Lord wants you to do. Staying afloat in this world and effectively accomplishing your mission is intimately tied to the idea of keeping water out of your boat. You can't have water in your boat and be effectively floating. And so really the truth is that we've got to have less of the world in us, that we've got to have the, not, be, not have the world in us, even though we're in the world. And there's the tension. There's the problem that we face in life. And the reality of this is, is that having purity of life is uh, deeply uh, connected to your view of God. If you have purity of life or not, it's going to be deeply and intimately connected to your view of who God is. And so that's really what we're going to be looking at together today in Malachi chapter 2, 17 through 3, 5. It's this. This is the big idea for today. The fear of the Lord 
is the key to a pure and useful life. I hope that when you hear that, that that's something that is stirred up within you. You want that. I want a pure life. I want a useful life. I want a life with purpose and and direction. And I want to be used uh, by God. I hope that that's something that you desire. Well, the fear of God is a key to that reality. It's the key concept in all of it. So let's read Malachi 2.17 through 3.5. And then we'll break it down together. It says this, Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the justice, uh, the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But... Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to uh, to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old. As in former years, and I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would stir us up to understand what it is that you have to say. God, we want to know you, and we know that the way that we're going to know you is through knowing your word. And so we pray that as we uh, open your word and as we read through it and think upon it, that we would be able to know you more, that we would draw near to you as your word tells us to, knowing that as we do that, as we're obedient to your call to draw near to you, that you'll draw near to us. Lord, if there's anything that we need in this world, if there's anything that our hearts cry and long for, it's to be close to you. It's to be in your presence, to be where you are. So God, have your way among us and cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, in this, what we're going to look at here in this section, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 through 3, 5, we're going to break it down into three pieces. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17 and chapter 3, verse 1 is going to be the revelation of the Lord. And then verses 2 and 3 will be the purification of the Lord. And then verses three, uh, excuse me, 4 through 5, the fear of the Lord. Now, as we think about this, one of the things that, that I, I, I consider or try to look at in this is that one of the marks of a, an unsaved life, of, a, of a, a boat that's filled with water, of someone who is filled with the world, not filled with Jesus, but filled with the world. One of the marks of that is an attitude or a bend towards self-service. That, that, that's just the way that it is. I, I always think about me. I'm always on my mind. I just want to do things that benefit me. I want to use other people for me. I'm looking for what's going to uh, best suit me. I'm just, uh, I'm always thinking about me. That that's one of the marks of a life that is filled with the world, that is unsaved and bent toward themselves. But on the contrast of that, the mark of a saved life is a desire to be used by God in the service of others. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. But there's this desire within you to say, I want my life to be a benefit to somebody else. That's a massive mark of a life that's been changed, a life that's been filled with Jesus. That I'm not filled with the world, I'm filled with Christ. That, that happens, and, and when, one of the things that takes place is that you have this desire to serve other people in various capacities, in various ways. The things that God's made you for, the stuff that you have gifts to, to do. And I hope that, that when I say that, there's a pulling of the Holy Spirit with in you that says, I want to be used by God, but I want my life to count. I don't want to get to the end of my life and say, man, I wasted that. Or, or, you know, think, geez, I wish I would have, uh, and have a bunch of different regrets and things that are there uh, within your soul, but that you say, I lived my life the way God wanted me to. I fulfilled the purpose for which he made me. And that's going to be different based on who you are and based on how God's made you. And the only way you're going to know is if you know the one who has the purpose for you. Here's how Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says it. For we are, this is you, this is talking about you. We are his 
workmanship. That, that word workmanship, it's a Greek word, means it's, it's a poema. It's where we get the idea of poem. It, it's, uh, it talks, talks about craftsmanship. It's this idea that God has crafted something. You are God's craftsmanship. You're his poem. God has invested into you. He's put something within you. Notice what it says there. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God has created you for good works. There is something that he has made you for, that he has uniquely designed you for, that you are to do. Now look at the rest of this. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about it like this, that as God looks across human history, across the annals of time, he knows who you are, when you'll be born, where you'll live, the kind of things you'll do, the kind of influence you'll have, the kind of places you'll live. Before you make any of these decisions, before you have any of these experiences, God knows the end from the beginning, and he has designed a specific task for you to accomplish. Here's the question. Are you doing it? Do you know what it is? Are you, are you using your life for that purpose or, or, or that, that ability at all? And I think that one of the sad realities is that for most of us, we don't even consider this reality, let alone pursue it. And so we may accidentally happen upon some of it because God is so good and he'll direct our path. But what if we were on board with what God was doing? What if we were actively pursuing and thinking, God, what have you made me for? And am I fulfilling the call and purpose that you have for my life? Am I doing, am I doing the stuff that you prepared beforehand? That God, before anything was ever here, he made it and he put you in that place. You see, you'll never know the meaning of your life until it's submitted to the Lordship of Jesus and his planned purposes for you. Then you'll know the meaning of your life. So let's look at this together in these three pieces. The first piece, the revelation of the Lord, 217 through 3.1. Look back at verse 17. It says this. God says to the people, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Here we see this fourth dispute that God has with the people. Remember, as we're looking at Malachi, we're organizing it around these disputes that God has with the people. And there are six of them. And this is the fourth one. That, that here as God opens this fourth dispute he has with the people, he says, you are wearing me out. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Think about that, that for just a second. Think about the implications of God saying, you're wearing me out. I mean, this is God. He speaks and the universe flies out. He has infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite ability. He says, you're wearing me out. What in the world is going on for that to take place? Well, why would God use that kind of language in order to communicate this relationship that's going on with the people? It's a pretty massive thing to, to say, considering who God is. You see, there can be a time when God says, I'm just not going to fight you anymore. Fine, you can have it your way. There does come a time when that takes place. You can read about that in, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, where God says that uh, my spirit will not strive with man any longer. There came a point in which God said, no more. I'm just not doing it anymore. You can have your way. And the way of humanity brings death, brings destruction, brings pain, brings chaos. Also in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says it like this. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. Doesn't that sound like a, a headline on a newspaper uh, in our day today? Well, maybe an online newspaper. Um, like, I don't read papers, right? <laughs> I read digital things. So, you know, it, it sounds like our world, that God has given people over to their desires. Essentially, what this is saying is that God eventually says, fine, I'm not going to fight you anymore. If you want it that badly, you can have it. You can go your way. It, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing for us to experience when God says you can have it 
your way. I remember the day that I got saved. I, I, I was at this, uh, I was 17 years old. As, I was halfway through my senior year of high school. Uh, I happened to, to, I happened, you know, the Lord made it to where I ended up at this, this arena. Uh, Acquire the fire was the thing uh, back then in, in the 90s. Like I said, I was a teen in the 90s. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this thing, Acquire the Fire, where they would just travel around and do these sort of weekend convention things where they bring in bands and speakers and artists and all that kind of stuff. And I remember sitting there on the first night, the first guy's speaking. And as he's speaking, it's like, I'm the only kid in this arena of 10,000, you know, and it's like, God's just putting his finger right on me. And I'm wrestling with God because I'm like, God, I don't really want to do this. I know what you want me to do. You want me to give my life to you. It was very clear. God was speaking right to me. I want you to give your life to me. And it was this supernatural thing that really had nothing to do with the guy up front, but everything to do with the Holy Spirit and God working in my life right there in that moment. And I'm wrestling with God like, no, I don't want to do it. And I remember a moment at which I felt the Spirit of God start to pull away. And I, I, I was afraid because in that moment, the, the, the lack of God's presence was more fearful than abandoning and admitting my sinfulness. I, I didn't want to really come to, terms, come to terms with or face to face with my sinfulness. But the, the lack of God's presence, God pulling away, was more scary than me abandoning my sin. And, and the truth is that there does come a time where God will say, fine, you can have it your way. And that's a dangerous place to be. That is a scary place to be. We want to experience God's presence in our lives, drawing us deeper into himself. That's where holiness is found. That's where purpose is found. And that's where the Lord works in our lives in this tremendous way. And so God says, you guys are wearing me out. You see, God is worn out by their filthiness. Oh, excuse me, their filthiness. Yeah, that too. But their faithless accusations against his character. Do you see that there in verse 17? He says, he says they, they say, in what way have you done this? And he says this, uh, you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where's the God of justice? This is the things that they're saying about God. Essentially, they're bringing faithless accusations against God and his character. They're, but they're the ones who are living in blatant, disobedient sinfulness. They're, they're the ones plunging headlong into what they know is wrong. And then they're turning around and saying, God, you're the one who's bad. That's exactly what the human heart does. That, that we get into sinfulness, we get into depravity, we get into the things that are filthy and wrong and disgusting and they, they just stain our souls and then we justify those things and move deeper into them and eventually we shift the tables and we turn God into being the one who's the bad guy. He's the one who's wrong and this is what's happening within the people. They're living in a self-delusion that they're the ones who are good and God's the one who's bad. And God, if you would just get in our program, if you would just realize that we have moved past this, that we have grown, we've evolved as a people, we are further than we were back then in that archaic way of thinking. And God, if you would just realize that we're good, then you could repent and you could get on board with our thing. And it's a crazy thought. It's an insane thing. It's a, it's a deluded, self-absorbed th- thinking process that the people are in. Now notice there that there's a question that's asked at the end of verse 17. It says this, where is the God of justice? You ever had somebody ask you a question that was less a question and more an accusation? That's what this is. This is not a question. This is an accusation. It's like saying, what's wrong with you? That's not, that is not a question. That is an accusation. That there is something coming uh, applied through. There's an implied accusation that's coming through. And essentially, they're accusing God of being unjust and therefore unworthy of honor. God, you're not good. You're not right. You're not just. You're not giving us the stuff that we need. We're going through the religious motions and we're not getting the blessings that you said we were going to get. And so you're not good. You you just, you must be broken. Something's wrong with God. He's broken. I put the coins in and uh, he didn't give me the tickets. And so there's, uh, God's bad and he's broken. Well, the, God needed to correct this. And, And truly the ultimate correction from God comes when he shows himself to his people. And that's his fix in chapter three, verse one. Look at that. Look at it there. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
Even the messenger of the covenant, covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the ultimate correction comes when God shows himself uh, by showing up as himself. God's not going to use a prophet. He's not going to use an angel. God himself is going to show up. God is going to come into human history. He's going to step from eternity into human history. That's what we're being told here in in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. God will interrupt the flow of human history. He promises that he's going to show up. He's going to fix the issue by revealing himself. Now, when this takes place, this is what we know from New Testament theology. This is Jesus. This is when Jesus steps onto the scene. This is Jesus coming into human history. And that's what we're going to look at and see here is being told to us. It's it's pointing to Jesus. Now, the theological term for this, of God stepping into human history, it's called the hypostatic union. Uh, This is, we've talked about this before, but just as a way of reminder, the hypostatic union. This is a a big theology term. Basically, what it means is that um, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man simultaneously. That when Jesus uh, was born of the Virgin Mary, He didn't become a man that then had to go on this noble quest to see if he was going to become God. That's Greek mythology and Norse mythology, right? Jesus wasn't Thor, okay? He didn't have to like gain back his awesomeness by, by sacrificing himself. That's movies. That's not biblical theology, okay? So, so when Jesus was born into human history, he pre-existed. He didn't come into existence when he was born the way that you and I do, okay? He pre-existed and he is 100% God in the baby, right? So he's, he's all God, didn't leave behind his godliness, but also all man, now, if you can figure that one out, you can wrap your brain around it. You come tell me how that works. I don't really know. I just know that that's what the Bible teaches, okay? So this is what we're looking at here, that this is what God says. I'm going to come into human history. I'm going to interrupt the flow of human history because what you need is not a message from me. You need me. You need me to get into your life. You need me to show you who I am because when we experience God's presence in our life, it's transformational. It changes everything. It changes everything. It sets our lives on a completely different course. And so here we're given three identifiers of knowing when this is going to happen. Notice there uh, in the beginning of verse one, it says, I send my messenger. I send my messenger. My messenger is this first one. Someone's going to come before, before God with the purpose of preparing the way. Anybody know who that might be? Jesus actually quotes this verse, right? John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. He quotes uh, Malachi 3.1 when he says this, John is the man whom the scriptures, to whom the scriptures refer when they say, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. Jesus says this, Malachi 3.1 is predicting John the Baptist. That's what Jesus says, that here's the prophecy and there is the fulfillment. Also, we're told here in chapter 3, verse 1, that he says uh, that he will prepare my way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to where? His temple. Do you see that there? So this gives us a timestamp. Just a quick question. In Israel, is there currently a temple? Negative. No, no, there is a, there is a mosque right? But there is no temple, okay? So in Israel, there is not a temple. And when you go back in history, you find that the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD by the Roman general Titus. Uh, he later uh, ended up, uh, you know, becoming one of the rulers there, but he was the Roman general Titus. He destroys the temple in 70 AD. So that gives us a hard stop, doesn't it? That, that if this, if whoever, if God showing up in human history is going to come suddenly to his temple, he had to do it before 70 AD. He couldn't do it afterward. Why? There's no temple. Very easy. Very, very simple. Very easy thing to see. So the messenger is going to come. He's got to come before 70 AD. And then notice there in, in uh, verse uh, one as well, he says, even the messenger of the covenant. Do you see that there? He's got a purpose for why he's coming, that this messenger is attached to the covenant. The purpose of the Lord's coming is to fulfill the old covenant and institute the new covenant. That's the point. 
And that's why Jesus came. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the blood of Jesus spilled on the cross, has everything to do with fulfilling the law on your behalf. Because you can't. Because you're not perfect. And no matter how much you want to be and how hard you try and how religious you are, you will never, ever, ever amount to enough. But Jesus is enough. And when he died on that cross, he didn't die for himself. He died for you. His blood poured out for you to make you right with God. To to make up the, the lack between your imperfection and God's holiness and perfection. And now... That old covenant is fulfilled in Jesus and the new covenant is based not upon your ability to keep the law, but on Jesus's ability and your willingness to believe in him. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 17. He said, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. That's why Jesus came. And so what we see here are these three markers of of when God would come into human history. And here Jesus is that one. You see, the revelation of God is what the people need. It's what you and I need because revelation is not for information. God doesn't reveal himself for your information. He reveals himself for your transformation. That's why God reveals himself. Because you can't be good enough. You can't be holy enough. You can't work hard enough. But he can put himself in you. He can give you his perfection. He can give you his holiness. He can literally change who you are. Transform you from the inside out. You see, God loves you just as you are. He loves you exactly as you are. But he also loves you way too much to leave you that way. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He has a a redeemed version of you that he thinks about, that he created you for. And he wants to change you into that. That man, that woman, that godly person who God has created you for. Not only do we see the revelation of the Lord, but in verses 2 through 3, we see the purification of the Lord. Uh, Verse 2 says this, But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. You see, think, think of it like this. Think of the prophet Malachi. He's standing on a mountain range. That's not too hard to imagine because we've got some beautiful mountains right here very close. He's standing up on a mountain range and, and the prophet himself is standing on one of the peaks of the mountains. And as he looks out in this prophecy, he's looking across the peaks of a mountain range. He can see all in one moment. He can see where he is in time. He can see the near future. He can see the distant future. And he can see the end of time all at once. And sometimes as he's speaking, all of those are wrapped up into that one thing that he's saying. And that's kind of what's happening here in this section. That he's talking about his people, his time. He's talking about the the distant future. And he's talking about the end of time and all of this that's happening. When he says, who can endure the day of his coming? He's not talking about the first coming of Jesus. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus came, there there was nothing to endure. Jesus endured everything. But on his second coming, Jesus comes in judgment. And Jesus comes with this, uh, this fire that he's coming with. You see, uh, in this, in one sense, this is pointing to both the first and second coming of Jesus. That the first coming of Jesus provided our purity. The second coming of Jesus comes to clean away those who will not receive his salvation. In verse 2 here, we have a very specific purpose as to why the Lord is coming to humanity. And what we're given is two similes. Uh, about who he is. Notice it says there, he's coming like refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. This idea of, of fire and soap. Uh, these similes are, what they're connected to is not just themselves, not just the fire, but the person doing the work with it. It's not just the fire, but it's the refiner using the fire. It's not just the soap, it's the launderer using the soap. And so as as we see this, it's connected to the purpose of the person using that. And just so that you're aware, just to kind of clear it all up, a refiner isn't looking to destroy, but to purify, right? When a refiner's working with metals, they're, they're not looking to destroy the metal, they're looking to purify the metal. When a launderer is working with soap, right? When you do your laundry, you don't go, ah, oh, I so hope that my pants get ruined, right? You don't, you don't do that as you're doing laundry. When you do your laundry, you're cleaning them. You're cleansing them, not destroying them. So too, the work of the Lord is your purification and cleansing, not destruction. 
That's what the work of God is all about. That's what he's there to do. That's what Jesus is coming to do. You see, the work of Jesus is forgiveness by his blood. His blood is the purifier. His blood is the cleanser. That's the work that he's coming to do. And he he does this work in himself, on his own, on your behalf, for you and for me. You see, the, the reality though is that the work of Jesus and his forgiveness by his blood doesn't just stop there, but he also takes responsibility for cleansing you. Jesus doesn't forgive you if you clean yourself up. That's not the way it works. It's not, hey, you got to, let me just get some stuff squared away in my life. Let me just clean myself up a little bit. Let me just get these things kind of dealt with. And and then when I'm not so jacked up, then I'll come to Jesus and I'll be like, hey, look, Lord, I've been working really hard. And I'll go, great, good job. That's not how it works. The reality is you come to him with all your nonsense, with all your junk, with all the stuff that you wouldn't tell anybody about. You know, those things that you hope nobody finds out about that are hidden in the closet. You're like, man, we're just going to lock this and throw away that key. We're never opening this door. Jesus wants to go in that door. And the reason he wants to go in there is because he alone has the capacity to fix it. He alone is the one who can forgive and clean. That's what he does. He, He doesn't forgive you if you clean yourself up first. He also doesn't forgive you so that you can clean yourself up, right? He doesn't say, hey, I'm, I'm here to, I, I'm going to die and I'm going to shed my blood and then I'm going to forgive you this one time. But from here on, you better, you better just figure it out. You better get this thing going. That is, that's not the way that the Lord works. No, it's, it's Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. It's his power lived out through my life. He alone is the one who does all of the work 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 say it like this. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. You see, we gain access to the purifying work of Jesus by submitting submitting to him and to his way. And it starts with him revealing that sinfulness in our lives. And when that sinfulness is revealed, God, God's not revealing sinfulness in you to beat you up over it. He's revealing it to remove it. He wants to pull it out of you. He wants to refine it away from you. He wants to clean it out of you. That's the work that God is doing. So when you see sin that, that comes into your life, don't reject it. Don't think God's beating you up. Instead, go to him with it. You see, when Jesus reveals sin to your heart, you can do one of three things. You can deny it. You can deny that it's sin. Say, you know what? That's not really wrong. It's not really sin. It's not really bad. In fact, if you just knew how culture was working today, you would see that those people are bad and I'm not bad. I'm not really that bad. I can measure myself against them and I'm doing pretty good. It's not really a bad thing. You can deny that it's sin. Or two, you can justify it. Well, I know it's wrong, but if you knew my circumstances, then you would know that it's okay. If you understood that, you know, I'm a redhead, so that means I'm fiery. That means I get to just blah and just blast people. Like I've got the gift of jerk. That's just, that's not the way things work. Like you don't get to do that. You can't justify your sinfulness. Well, if you knew my situation, it's really hard to pay rent. And so we have to live together. No, no, that's sin. You're justifying sin. The truth is, That we can either deny it, justify it, or three, confess it. That's what 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 is telling us to do. If we confess our sins, and that doesn't just mean, yep, I did it. Yep, I did it. It means to agree with God that it's wrong. That I'm going to agree with God. This is wrong. This is improper. This is bad. This is evil. This is vile. This is sin. Therefore, I'm abandoning it. I'm giving it to you, Lord. Jesus, this cost your life on the cross my sin, not just vague concept of sin in general, but my wickedness, my depraved heart, the things that are hidden within the recesses of my soul. Jesus, it costs you everything. And so I don't want to, I don't want to deny it. I don't want to justify it. I want to, I want to confess it because only one of these gives you access to what you need, that forgiveness, that cleansing power of God. Now notice in verse three, that this imagery is taken further. This imagery of the, the refiner and the launderer, he says, he, Jesus, right? God is the one who will sit 
as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. You see, the, the imagery is taken further to show not just that he's the fire or, the, or the, the, um, the refiner, but that he's sitting over a pot, that, that there's this pot of gold or silver and he's smelting it. And, and Jesus is the one sitting over the pot. He's actually intimately involved with the process. You see, when the fire of trial and hardship gets turned up in your life, the first thing that I typically do, so I'm going to assume it's probably what you do, is I think that Jesus left. Maybe he just walked away. Maybe he just abandoned me. Maybe he doesn't really want to be a part of this. Or, you know, I look, I'm like, God, I know you're there. So why don't you turn the fire off? Right? Like that would be really helpful right now. I don't like it. It's hot and it kind of hurts. I'm just not into this. Lord, why don't you help me out? Just fix this issue, fix this problem, fix this, this thing that I'm going into. And, and what we see here is that God is actually the exact opposite. That when the fire gets turned up, we tend to ask the same question they asked in chapter 2 verse 17. Where's the God of justice? I don't deserve this God. I don't like this God. And if you were good, you'd fix it. If you were who you say you are, if you're so powerful, if you're so mighty, why don't you just fix it? If you're so, so, if you love me as much as your word says, why don't you turn the fire off? Why do you keep turning it up? We go to the exact same place they did. Isn't it crazy how Malachi is like reading a, 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 a paper about my own life, reading, reading into my own soul and the heart issues that I have, you see the assumption is that the situation is bad and I don't like it. And because God doesn't fix it, that makes God bad. And that's where our minds tend to go. You see, many times the truth is though, that Jesus is the one sitting over this. And many times the difference between where you are and where you want to be is the painful situation that you're avoiding. What if that fire that God is, is turning up in your life is the exact thing you need to grow, to change, to develop, to become more pure, to get the water out of your boat. What if that's exactly what you need, but you're constantly avoiding it? You're constantly insulating yourself from it. You're constantly removing yourself from the situation of the pain and the difficulty and the hardship and the trial. And because you're constantly getting out of the, the pot, you're jumping out of the hot water, because you're constantly getting out of it, you're never growing, you're never maturing, you're never developing because you think the, the pain is something that's bad, but in fact, it's something that Jesus is doing. You see, Jesus is the one sitting over your life, carefully crafting and turning up the heat in your life because that's what brings the purity into your life that you need. I know it's hard. I know it hurts. I know it's not fun. I know everything in you is screaming, get me out of this. But you've got to trust that God is in control and he's actually producing something within you that can be produced no other way. You see, two things to grasp in this with this imagery of God sitting over the pot is number one, he loves you enough to work in you. He loves you enough to sit over your life and to turn up the heat. He loves you enough to do it. And secondly, Maturity dictate, dictates the depth of purity. If you want to be pure, it's going to happen through maturity. It's going to happen through this, this turning up of the fire in your life. And here's the truth. Here's the truth. There are things that you can handle today because of your depth of maturity that you couldn't handle back then. Does that make sense? Or it's like the way that, you know, my, my daughter, uh, she's uh, turned 15, uh, my oldest, which is weird for me to say. I don't feel like I'm old enough to say I got a 15-year-old. Uh, I remember there was a day when she really, uh, she really wanted uh, steak because, you know, I'm discipling my girls in, in, in the Lord and, and praise God, I've, I'm going to give them meat. And so I remember having her on my lap. She's this young little girl. She's, you know, about 18 months old and I'm feeding her steak. And uh, she freaks out because she wants the knife that I'm holding in my hand. And, and like, you know, like any good dad, she freaks out. She starts crying. I'm like, oh, okay, here, sweetheart. And I handed it to her, right? Of course I didn't do that. You're like, I'm dialing CPS right now. This guy's bad, you know? Like, no, I didn't hand her the knife. I, I held it away from her. And you know what she did? She lost her mind. She lost her mind because 
I must be evil if I didn't give her what she wanted. I must be wrong. I must be evil. I must be terrible. But, but I know if I give this to her, this is going to damage her. This is going to destroy her. This is gonna, she's going to kill herself and or me uh, if I hand her this knife. And, and so I'm not going to do it. Now, today, it's like, hey, kid, you got to cut your own steak. I'm not, you, you figure it out. Here's a, you know where the knives are. Go get one, and you cut your own, your own steak. The, the truth is that the things that she couldn't handle when she was younger because they were damaging and detrimental to her today are actually good for her. The same thing is true in our maturity in the Lord. There are things that you can't handle in your life today that as God grows you and matures you and develops you, you will be able to handle tomorrow. So when things are rising up within your soul and this sinfulness rises to the surface, don't be so surprised, right? God knew it was there, even if you didn't. And when he turns up the heat in your life, that's when that stuff rises to the surface. And he's doing that so he can purify it. So he can take it out. So he can remove it away. Because that's what a, that's what a smelter would do. That's what a, a refiner would do. They turn up the heat. The impurities rise to the surface. And then they just scrape the top off. They scrape the top off. And you know what happens when a purifier, uh, a refiner purifies this gold, this silver? They know when it's pure when they can see their own reflection in it. That's what God's looking to do. You need him in your life. Not just information, but Transformation. And that's what God's looking to do in our lives. All right, number three, we got to move a lot faster. Uh, revelation of the Lord, purification of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord, verses four through five. Verse four, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. Notice, notice that? Then, when the purifying is done, then the offering will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. This shows us that God is using fiery hardship and trial for a specific purpose. He's doing it to produce a pure life. uh, And the kinds of things that flow out of that type of life are what are well-pleasing to him. When he purifies your life, then the stuff that flows out of it is well-pleasing. It just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That when your life is pure, whatever comes out of it is pure. But if your life is not pure, then whatever flows out of it is not pure. And so the, the goal that God goes for isn't necessarily the exact stuff that you're doing. He goes for the purity of your heart, the purity of your life. And as your life is made more pure, he causes the stuff to, that comes out of it to be pure as well. Contrary to popular belief, your default position is not good. The world is preaching the exact opposite. The world is preaching the message that people are basically good, that we are all pure, and therefore, you know, whatever we do is Right? The Bible teaches the exact opposite. Your default position is fallen, broken, sinfulness, depraved, evil, wretched. That's your default position, okay? So the default position is not pleasing to God. That actually, according to Romans chapter 5, makes you God's enemy. You, you become God's enemy in this fallen position. But also Romans 5 goes on to say it's while you're God's enemy, that's when he dies for you. That's when Jesus sacrifices himself for you. Here's the truth. People spend a lot of time trying to justify the stuff that God's trying to purify. We spend spend so much of our lives, so much of our time, so much of our culture, so much of our effort is trying to say, this is actually good. It's actually right. It's actually okay. It's actually, you know, God's the one that's wrong. And God is just trying to look at those exact same things and saying, this is the stuff that's got to be purified. We don't make room for this. We get rid of this. It's bad logic. Essentially, people say dolphins swim, lions eat gazelle, I fill in the blank. Whatever sin that that people want to have. That's the logic that people use. And it's just terrible. Just because you want it, that doesn't make it good. Right? God wants to purify those things out of our lives. Your default position is depravity. You see, God doesn't need to accept your filthiness. You need to accept his cleansing. That's the way it needs to go. We don't look at God and say, you've just, just got to accept me as I am and, and, and this is all that, that there is and this is the way it's going to be. No, God does accept you and receive you as you are in order to clean you, in order to produce that cleanliness within you, not just to say, well, I guess this is just who you are and so we're just going to keep going this way. You can't say, I was born this way, therefore it's okay. That's, that's bad logic. That is exactly the opposite 
of what the Bible teaches. Yes, you were born that way. And God needs to fix it because it's broken. It's depraved. It's evil. It's filthy. It's wretched. We got to come to the Lord with that brokenness and ask him to fix it. Also, verse five, notice it says there, and I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God is coming to pass judgment, the very judgment they accuse him of failing at. Remember 2.17? You're not just God. You're not good God. And he says, I am coming. I'm coming to pass this judgment. And we have this list of seven sins that are here. And either these sins were done uh, to the people. Someone had done this and they're saying, God, you didn't, you didn't get them. They're bad. They did this to me. Or maybe the people are participating in the sin and they're doing it. And they're saying, well, you know, God didn't really, he didn't really judge us. So I guess it's okay. Or it's probably a mix of both. It's probably a mix of both that are going on there. You see, in this, uh, they're, they're bringing this accusation against God. And their accusation implies that God is either incompetent or indifferent. God, you're, you're incompetent or indifferent. You're incompetent you're, that bad people are doing bad things and they're not being dealt with properly. You're just, uh, apparently you don't know what you're doing, God. Or he's indifferent. God doesn't care. And so because God doesn't care, we're going to get away with it. Either way, it's, a, it's an accusation against God that is absolutely insane. It's a faithless thought. And God, essentially, he says, I'm coming to fix it. And he hasn't, essentially, the people are saying, you know, you haven't showed up yet. Why would I believe you? Have you heard that with people? Have you ever heard people say that kind of thing to you? Yeah, I know you're, you said, you know, Jesus is coming or whatever. Well, he hasn't showed up yet. So, you know, whatever. That's a, a fun fairy tale that you're thinking about. That's a, that's a cute idea. Jesus hasn't showed up yet. And so, you know, I, I'm just not going to believe in that Jesus. Um, that was one of the things that's been, uh, that's sort of plagued Christianity since its inception, because Jesus said, I'm coming back. And ever since then, people have said, yeah, he hasn't come back yet. So he must not be real. In Second Peter 3, 9, it says this, the Lord isn't, isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. The reason Jesus hasn't come back for the second coming is because that's game over. That is, that is not a good day in human history. It's a good day in terms of this is where it's all, it all is over and we're not dealing with sin any longer. But man, think about all the people who you know that aren't saved, or maybe yourself. You're sitting here realizing I'm not saved. I haven't given my life to Jesus. I've done the religious thing, but I don't, know, I don't know Jesus. I don't have any security in my salvation. That if Jesus showed up right now today, you don't have this confidence to say, I would, I would go with him. That's a bad day. That's a bad day because he's coming with this fire. Verse two, it says, who can endure the day of the Lord? He is coming. And just because he hasn't come back yet doesn't mean he's not coming back. It means he's being patient because he doesn't want any, anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. You see, judgment is coming because they lack a key component to the pure life that's pleasing to God. Notice there at the end of verse five, because they do not fear me. It's the fear of the Lord. Every single sin, every sin that you ever commit, every sin that controls your life, everything that is wrong with the world, everything that is evil that we deal with, all of it, all of it comes down to one singular thing, belief. Belief. What do you believe? Any sin that grips your heart, the way you're going to find freedom from it is changing what you believe. Either you choose to believe the opposite of what the Bible says, therefore you sin, or you believe God's a liar and therefore you sin. That's the only reason why you sin. It's belief. It's belief. You see, quoting verses and explaining theology doesn't equal belief. The Bible tells us in, in James that even the demons believe and they tremble. There, there's an idea of, of being able to know what it says, but not believe it. Not believing in the Lord. So I would challenge you with this idea. Do you believe who God is? Do you believe in what he has to say? Do you believe that his way is the right way? Do you believe that his way is the best way? Do you believe that what he has for you is what you need? Or do you think that somebody else has it? Some other way has it? Some other thing is the way I'm going to get this, this put together. What do you really believe? And I'll tell you, what you really believe is shown in what you do. If you want to know what you believe, look at what you're actually doing. That's where you'll find what you really believe. 
You see, this, this idea of fear, the fear of the Lord, it's a combination of being afraid and having a reverential respect. That's, the, that's this idea of the fear of the Lord. It's a combination of, of being afraid and having reverential uh, uh, respect. Here's the idea. It's that God is bigger than me, right? That's kind of a scary idea. I don't care what the hat says. Jesus is not your homeboy, okay? You, you, you don't get to be buddies with Jesus like that. He is bigger than you. He is greater than you. He is above you. He is God. There's kind of a fear that goes along with that, isn't there? This, this sort of afraid kind of fear. But it's not just that. It's also this. It's balanced by this. God is better than me. That's the idea of respect. God's bigger than me and God's better than me. And so I, there's this respect and awe that comes across the Lord. When I fail to see God for who he truly is, then I lose the needed and appropriate fear of the Lord in my soul. That's what happens. And when I lose the fear of the Lord in my soul, instead of using my life to serve the will of God, I end up trying to manipulate everything, including God, to serve me. That's what ends up taking place. So what do you do when you find out there's a bunch of water in your boat? What do you do when you realize I'm sunk, that, that the world is in me and there's too much of that going on or I don't even know if I'm saved? When do you, when do you, what do you do when you recognize the world is in you? You run to the fear of the Lord. That's where you go. You run to the fear of the Lord. Jesus is the purifier. Jesus is the, the cleanser. And Jesus alone is the one who can push that worldliness out of your soul and unsink your boat. That's the only one who can do it. It's Jesus and him alone. And when you run to the fear of the Lord, he floods your soul with his power, with his presence, with his purpose in your life. So let me ask you, let me just plead with you in this. Give your life to Jesus. Commit yourself to him wholly. He alone is worthy of it. Whether you've never given your life to Jesus before or today's the day to say, I need to give my life to him afresh and anew to recommit and reestablish my life in him. You need it. You need to be purified. You need to be cleansed. You need a vision of God. You need a revelation of him, not just for information, but for transformation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the chance to study it together. We thank you that you speak to us so clearly and that you help us to see you for who you are. And I pray that you would take us and, and unsink us and cause us to be established in you and that you would push out of us the worldliness, Lord. Please have that freedom within our lives to turn up the heat, to make things uncomfortable so that we might become pure and cleansed. God, show us where we're wrong. Show us where our sin is and give us the courage to admit it and repent from it, to abandon it, not justify it. Lord, we love you and we know that we can only say that because you first loved us. So we commit our day to you in Jesus' name. Amen.